Hi, I'm Marianna. I'm part of the teaching team here. And last week we had a guest speaker. We had Wayne Marcy, um, friend of the family and author of Love Holy, who spoke to us about the lifestyle God calls us to live, very much, I think, like what you saw in that video. It's the one he wants to live through us, a lifestyle of God-like love. And Wayne calls it holy love. He encourages us to love holy. And he defined love as a deed that meets a need. Did you see that in the video? Group is taking as many of their fans as want to come along to Tijuana, Mexico this summer to build homes for the homeless. Um, They're defining that as who they are. And Wayne last week also reminded us that unmet emotional needs magnify our sin nature. They propel us to misbehave and they make us susceptible to emotional strongholds. And we need to deal with that because love is to be the defining characteristic of a Christian, right? And he talked about 19 characteristics of holy love. Does anybody remember any? You don't have to remember all 19. Give 1 Corinthians, yes, this is a tip. Patient, kind. We can do a couple more. Slow to anger. It doesn't envy. It forgives. It keeps no record of wrongs. Not self-seeking. Bears all things. Hopes all things. Awesome. So our lesson today, we're going back to our um, lesson series on Colossians. And it's about dueling paradigms, a word that Wayne mentioned. So what is a paradigm? It's the, the original meaning was a pattern. For like hundreds of years, that's all it meant. A pattern, kind of like a blueprint. If I hire you to build me a house, I'm going to give you a blueprint. This is what I'm expecting to see, and you can look at it to see if you're building it right. right? Well, since the 60s, it's really come to mean more like a set of assumptions, values, concepts, and practices that constitute a way of viewing reality for the community that shares values, especially in an intellectual discipline. So you might have physicists who look at the world a certain way, and then you might have biologists who think according to different rules. I think one of the most obvious um, differences is probably in what we still call modern medicine, where the body is looked at in a very mechanical way. This is a machine. It's got parts. And if you have a problem, we'll fix that part. Um, we might not think you. We might not put transmission fluid in you, but we'll give you some prescription, right? And there's other schools of thought in medicine that are more holistic. So, for example, if I show up at one of those doctors and say my stomach hurts, instead of just looking at my stomach, they're going to ask, oh, are you stressed out? How's your emotional health? How's your dental health? Can you really chew all your food thoroughly, or have you been eating without being able to chew? Yes, I know, (laughs) Joyce, I understand. Um, They might look at my liver, my pancreas, you know, more of a whole view. They have a different paradigm from the doctor that's got the more mechanical paradigm. The song talked about, um, looked in the mirror and I wasn't who I wanted to be. There's another song that that has a line about, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And I think the two are pretty much connected, especially for Christians. If you've been born again, you start having a sense of who you were meant to be. And particularly as you start learning more about God. And that creates some dissonance, some stress. 
because I realize I'm not who I should be, who I want to be, whatever. I'm feeling uncomfortable. And maybe people are calling on me to be a little better. And that can be a dangerous time for a Christian because we don't like uncomfortableness, particularly in our culture, unless you're in sports and then it's okay. Right? And so that's a time when we might decide, oh, well, you know, I'm just forget Christianity. I'll believe in God. I'll just go out in the woods. But, you know, I, I don't need this feeling. Or it's the church. It's the church that's making me feel uncomfortable. Right? So we need to, to watch for what paradigm are we hanging on to. See, just like Adam and Eve, we have this tendency to keep believing the enemy's lies. Remember, he started by questioning God's paradigm. He said, did God really say this? Oh, well, if he said that, it's because, not because he's a good God. No, it's because he knows that if you eat from this tree that he's telling you not to, you will be more like God. You will become like God. And what's crazy about that is whose image were they created in? They were already like God. I mean, he's introducing a new way of thinking where I'm not, I'm not, I don't have everything I could have, and I'm going to have to take it away from God because he's not going to give it to me. See, total shift in thinking. Okay. Ever since then, there's been these dueling paradigms, dueling systems of seeing the world, of defining reality, different values and practices for life. So I'm calling this lesson our dueling dust paradigms. And hopefully that will make some sense before we're done. But I want to start with some prayer. Lord, I ask that today you would make us fall even more crazy in love with you. Lord, when the day comes that we can really look into your eyes, we don't want to see ourselves reflected back. We want to see you. We want to be reflections of you. We want to love the way you love and live the way you live and see the way you see. So, God, I ask that you would come in a mighty way today and blow away all of our excuses, all of the dust on our windshields, and share with us that energy and that excitement you have about this adventure that you've called us on. And, Lord, today we also lift up to you um, the Gulf region, the governors have asked for us to join them in seeking your help because you're the only one that has an answer for something this big. And, Lord, we ask that you would show up and show off. We ask that intercessors who've never dared to command the clouds would see that um, the storms are rolled away. Lord, we ask for your creative ideas in the scientists, and most of all, right now, we bind up a spirit of fear and despair and suicide. And we send those things to the feet of Jesus. And we declare that this will be a time when God's name is praised and when God's works are made obvious to all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Okay. So when we look at the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tells us the story of Jesus, and they're basically talking to us about how God has done his part to reach down to us and help us get back into that kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had before they started throwing away the paradigm, right? Well, the rest of the New Testament, and I'm simplifying, I realize it, but really pretty much after the Gospels until the beginning of Revelation, we are being taught how to make that transition 
from the old way of thinking to the new way of thinking, the old way of living to the new way of living, because we're headed for eternity. We're headed for this kingdom, and we're already starting to experience it. So it's, it tells us about how to make that transition from world life to life in the kingdom, from darkness to light. And we each make that journey in different ways and at different speeds. I want to share with you, I was reading an article online, and Guy had responded, and I just was blown away by it. So this is how he got a new paradigm about what church is and what even these meetings are for. He says, at 80 years of age, dating my affiliation with churches for the greater part of those years, my contention is that the church is a gathering of God's people for the purpose of expressing God's will in their community. We ought not to get together to feel good, but to hear what God is saying to his people on his day. As we move further and further away from this purpose, we get further and further away from being his people. The sermons we hear from the pulpit are important, but the more important sermons we will take away will be inspired by what we have observed in the pews or in our case, these great plastic churches, plastic chairs. If all we hear is how wonderful the music was or how brilliant our pastor's words were, we miss our purpose. The 45 years of my life were spent in church. Then I came to realize the importance of not just hearing, but implementing God's word in my everyday life. What a concept! And as if the storm clouds had been rolled away, my new life in Christ took on a vibrancy that supersedes all of the other distractions of the day. My new life in Christ, this is after 45 years, took on a vibrancy that supersedes all of the other distractions of the day. Peter suggests that this life is joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I come to you affirming that this is a truth that ought to become real for all of us. I find it to be very fascinating that whenever I express what I believe to be God's will in my life, I am always asked, which church do you attend? And my response, the one we are attending here in this place. See, he understands that church, church being the called out people of God, That doesn't end when the doors close on a building. Church is wherever you are. It's wherever I am. And the the song talks about, this is where I finally take my stand. This is who I am. If you want to know what I believe, you don't need to listen to me except for the next half hour or so. If you want to know what I believe, watch my life, look at my checkbook. You could be hearing impaired and you would know exactly what I believe. So we've been studying Paul's letter to the Colossian church or people, and it's been called the worldview letter. And another word for worldview is your life paradigm, your philosophical, theoretical framework. And we've learned that we are God's co-workers, that walking with God is a journey, a process, not a one-time jump, not even a little series of jumps. And God calls us to continue in this process, to continue getting to know him better and reflecting him better. We reflect them when we live holy lives that are poured out for others. There's even a a Greek word for pouring out, completely pouring yourself out. And we are to trust in Christ's ability to change us, empower us, work through us, instead of trying to trust ourselves to do it. That's what Adam and Eve did. Oh, we can do it. We just got to eat that apple instead of letting God give them what they needed. 
And as we go through that process of replacing our old way of looking at life with God's worldview or God's paradigm, God's kind of love, we are truly born again. And that's not just something that happens in one moment. We tend to refer to it that way. Oh, I was born again on this date. It's a process that continues for years, or at least it should. And in the opening video, the singer says, I'm giving him the best of everything that's left of the life inside this man. I've been born again. That's the whole point to being born again and still have life. So the effort of building a house for someone comes from my giving my life to Christ and letting him live through me. You know, one of the greatest compliments I ever received came from David back when we were getting to know each other. He said, you know, Mariana, you leave it all on the field. It's a football or sports metaphor. The idea is that when you're playing the game, you give it everything you've got, all of your attention, all of your energy, all of your passion. When the last whistle blows, you pretty much collapse because there's nothing left. And that's, that's how I want to live. And I'll tell you why, because I'm no longer thinking of my life as one human being on this planet for X number of years. My worldview is shaped around the concept of eternity. And so the idea is that not only what I do, but who I am has an eternal effect on the world far beyond what I can even imagine. I want to look at Revelation 20:12 out of the Amplified Bible. I also saw the dead, great and small. They stood before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, sentenced by what they had done. Their whole way of feeling and acting, their aims and endeavors, in according with what was recorded in the books. Most translations just say according to what you've done, and that's true, but it means so much more. It's who you are. And so that's, that's why I'm eager to be who I was meant to be. Look at how Peter encourages us. This is out of the message paraphrase. It's 1 Peter 1, verses 12 through 22. I've taken some of it out for time, but. Do you realize how fortunate you are? Angels would have given anything to be in on this. So roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil. You could have said ruts. Doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. Now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended on it. Your new life is not like your old life. In my old life, I could pretty much do whatever I thought was a good thing to do as long as I didn't break the law and get caught, right? That's not my new life. Every decision I make affects who knows how many people. So I want you to cooperate with me for a few minutes. I want you to imagine that we're going to do a flash forward. We're going to travel in time forward to Judgment Day. And we tend to have misconceptions about that. You know, we tend to, I, I, I always thought of it as, oh, boy, he's going to open the book and he's going to go, okay, in second grade, you took so-and-so's thing, and in fourth, you know. I'm looking at it differently now. I'm thinking, so imagine that it's Judgment Day. There's been this long line of people. Now it's finally your turn, right? And so people start walking by, people who are in your life. 
sharing what their self-image was like or what their life was like before you interacted with them, and then what it was like afterwards. So let's see who comes first. Ah, it's Grandma. Grandma totally identified herself as a discarded wife because she was. That's something that happened to her, and that shaped her whole feeling about life, about herself. But you were a part of her life, and so were other people. And so that's not how her story ends. Let's see how she sees herself. She sees herself as a cherished bride of Christ. And you had something to do with that. Let's go on to the next one. Oh, these these are your neighbors. And uh, at one point, the doctors were telling them they couldn't have children. And the guy was in Iraq for a couple years. And then when he came back, he had a near-fatal car accident. And through all that, you were good neighbors to them. And you prayed with them and you supported them. And so that's not how their story ended. They did have a baby. And he's walking again. And he's recognizing that as a miracle from God. And you didn't do that single-handedly, and it was God who did it, but you were one of the people he was able to work through. Who's next? Ah, your sister, the crack addict who wound up HIV positive. And that's how she saw herself as completely worthless. But you stuck with her, and she wound up seeing herself as delivered, forgiven, and in the process of healing. I mean, if just one of those was true, wouldn't that be an awesome life? This is the guy that mows your lawn. At one point in his life, he was stabbed ten times and left for dead by a relative. And that has consumed him. And when you met him, he was bitter. He wanted revenge. This, just, this was his whole framework for life and God and anything else was got, went through those lenses. But you and other people came along. And that's not how his story ends. He realized he's physically and spiritually alive, and he doesn't live in that moment anymore. Still another one. This is the lady um, that checks you out at HEB, and you always go on the same day at the same time, so you always pretty much end up with the same cashier. And you didn't realize it at the time, but she was really dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts and all sorts of torment. And one day you felt inspired to say something to her, and you didn't even know if she got it or not. But that wound up being the last straw, in a good way, to push her towards getting some help. And because you got her started on that path, she was set free, rescued, delivered. She's praising God now for eternity. Here's a guy you worked with. He had been on drugs, and at that point he considered himself lost. He had been homeless. He was very ashamed of that, and he felt abandoned. But again, you came alongside. You got outside of your own little problems or big problems. And guess where he wound up? The pastor of a church, and apparently happy about it. And then here's Mom. Mom lived every day for prescription drugs every day for her next fix. But this took 20 years, but you stuck with it. And other people did too, and that's not where her story ends. She's living every day for the king for the rest of eternity. Now think about this. 
if you live 50 years as an engaged Christian, not a wearing the label Christian, and you affect two or three people a year. When Judgment Day comes, we're talking about over 100 people, right? I mean, that seemed like a lot probably to you right now. But that's not an overwhelming number, if you think, two or three a year. And it's God's power working through you. Here's a little more um, from First Peter. This time it's chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. I don't know what you do to feel like a man or a woman or whatever, but it's not worth your soul or mine. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. They may have all sorts of very well-founded ideas about Christianity, but your actions can tear all those down. Not your words, not your beating them over the head with the Bible. You're actually living it. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. The pictures were from a video that was just too long to play, but it's interesting because they're not like professional actors or anything, so there's, these people are scared to death to come up on the stage with their little cardboard testimony, and some of them you can tell they're praying. And, but I've watched about ten times, and every time I end up weeping. Because there's a line in the song, they're playing a, singing a song during this time, that says, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. We may not realize. That's what grace does, those pictures. And this is the adventure we're called to. And yet I see people living, hanging on to their little cup of stale Cheerios that have fallen on the floor three times. They've got dog hair in them. There's this whole banquet set up for us. We're hanging on to our little Cheerios, and we're really happy when we pick the dog hair out, right? And we live life this way, and study after study of Christians and non-Christians, looking at divorce rates, looking at all sorts of things, finds no difference. In fact, sometimes we're a little worse in the church. And that breaks my heart, because that wasn't the point, So let's read together from the first chunk of Colossians 3. And I'm using the message version, and then we're going to use, that's a paraphrase we're going to use, a more literal translation to go verse by verse. But because it's kind of long, we're doing Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. I want us to take turns. And so I thought maybe we could do have the men read one, and then the women read a slide. Would that work for you? Yes? Maybe? Okay. Okay, let's start with the men. So, if you're serious about living new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Okay, lady. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. 
when Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death. Guys, sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better. But you know better now, so make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the Creator with His label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious, irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master, Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. Good job. Okay, let's take a breath. You breathe, I'll drink. Is it clear that Paul is calling the Colossians to live a different life? So here, I know you've been waiting, is where we finally get to the dueling paradigms and what does dust have to do with it. Okay, in one corner, we have the world system. And in the other, we have the kingdom worldview. The world system reminds us that, you know, after all, we're just dirt. And there's actually some truth in this, and that's why it's so believable. Remember in Genesis, we were told that God made mankind out of the dust of the earth, right? And if you do a chemical analysis of a human body, take out all the liquid, look at the minerals, it's pretty much like the surface of the earth. It's very, very much like it. Huh, what do you know? Moses got it right. Um, and so it's perfectly natural for us to be weak, for it to be hard for us to resist the urges of the flesh, whether that urge is to eat a whole pizza or to slap somebody I wouldn't know anything about that. But just because we have natural desires and even needs doesn't mean we have to be ruled by those things. 
I don't know if you can read that, but it says, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes. Yeah, David found it disturbing. And, it's, you know, it should be disturbing when we're doing that in life, right? Just, oh, I can do it, so let me do it. Well, if the appetite is your guide for how you behave, I mean, it's natural, right? Then we can indulge in things like friendlies, grilled cheese, burger mouth. Yes, that is two grilled cheese sandwiches with a burger in between. Yes, it is. And with fries, it comes out to 1,500 calories, 97 grams of fat, 97, and over 2,000 milligrams of sodium. There you go. But if Michael Phelps is still hungry, he could order their caramel cinnamon swirl French toast. You're looking at a cinnamon bun split down the middle, fried an egg, served with ice cream, cream cheese, caramel topping, and whipped cream. That's 2,090 calories for breakfast, which already exceeds the federal guidelines for your whole day. And then, and then you can keep some of that fat with you. Because we were created with this handy storage system called our arteries. The yellow is fat. The red is blood. Yeah, I think you knew arteries were supposed to carry blood, but if you're eating at Friendly's, that's the name of the restaurant. No kidding. So, unfortunately, while it may be natural to have an appetite, the human body was not designed to be able to process the unrestrained feeding of that appetite. And that goes for our sexual appetite, our appetite for revenge, our appetite for constant stimulation, you name it. And yet, we keep going back to dirty stuff, don't we? And, you know, when the Bible talks about people who've learned about God going back to the dirty stuff, back to the old paradigm, it's pretty harsh. I'm not even going to read you the whole chapter, but this is a little part of what it says in 2 Peter 2, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I'll give you my translation of that in a minute. We wallow in our filth. And usually that's because there's some kind of payoff. Even when what we're wallowing in is self-pity, there's some payoff. I have a newsflash for you. Everybody has some tragedy in their lives. If it wasn't in your personal life, then it's maybe your parents, somebody in your family. Some people have multiple tragedies. Everybody's got them. That can't be the excuse for not growing. That can't be the excuse for staying infantile. That can't be the excuse for feeding all my appetites because after all, I was abused or this happened or that happened. And when we keep bringing up that tragedy decades later, reliving it, demanding sympathy, using it as an excuse, what we're doing is we're giving power to that tragedy. We're giving it more and more power. We're giving our power away. And God teaches us that we can leave all that junk behind, but it's, it's hard. And it's hard because it's so familiar. It's met our needs in some twisted way over the years. And I saw this great quote from a guy named Anatole France. 
All changes, even the most longed for, have their melancholy. For what we leave behind us is a part of ourselves. We must die to one life before we can enter another. And God calls us to die to our old life. And if we had a clue about the life he's offering us, and what a piece of junk worldly life is compared to it, I mean, it wouldn't be a problem at all for us. There's a lady I've become friends with online over the years, and she's a cooking instructor. And she started a new series trying to help people develop better eating habits. And um, I want to read you just a little snippet of how she explained that this process gets easier as you take each tiny step. She says, I'm moving on to a new phase in my life. I'm going there instead of hanging out here. And I'm going over there where things are easier. I'm moving at a pace I can stand that'll get me there for sure, and I'm just going. I'm just going over there to that place where ice cream and wine are so inconsequential. Because all I want to do is feel better. And once I get closer and closer to that, then the wine and the chocolate, she lives in Paris, the wine and the chocolate and the chips and the french fries and the beer and donuts just don't matter so much or at all. And they'll seem like some kind of bad dream from before that just doesn't work where I'm going. I'm going over there. I'm going to the new version of me. I'm becoming me version 2.0. Those are her words. So how would you feel if I encouraged you to become you version 2.0? Would that mean that I don't accept you? That I'm manipulative? I'm controlling, I'm judgmental, because I'm not accepting the old version? Of course not. It means I love you and I want to see you have your full life and to fulfill your destiny. And if I don't encourage you, then it probably means I don't care. Stay in your mire. (laughs) And yet, the world paradigm not only says we are just dirt, it says we can't help it. And it also tells us that we are all that matters. And that's a dangerous fantasy. But God offers another worldview. This is from Sebastian Moore, who wrote, God is a new language. Human living, is, as it is normally pursued, is an escape from reality. The gospel message is a recall to reality, revealed as a mystery of forgiveness. A recall to reality. I like that. Because what was the original paradigm? Was God there first or was self there first? So what is God's paradigm? It's right here in Colossians 3. Let's look. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So our mind should be on the supernatural realm, the spiritual dimension. How is God interacting with this situation I'm in? What does he want to say to the people that I'm interacting with? How does he want to meet their needs through me? That should be the focus of my attention and not so much exactly what's happening physically. Let's look at the next side. Um, I really love this picture of, of Christ putting new garments on someone, putting himself 
on someone, but there's, there's one little problem with it. When you were little, did you ever, were you ever like playing outside all day and you came in all dirty and your mom said, go put on some clean clothes? Did you put them on on top of your muddy jeans and try to get your shoes on on top? No, you got to take something off. So that's the only problem with that picture. But other than that, I really, really like it. Okay. Um, I'm going to read to you from some of the teachings of a guy named Ray Stedman because he says it so well, I couldn't do better. He says, here in the plainest of language, go ahead and click it. Okay. Here in the plainest of language, Paul tells us what we must put off. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's your old life. And then he lists five things that have to do with our sexual power. That's how he starts. I know you think it's only four, but it's five. Hang on. We are basically sexual beings. Sex in the Bible is like a great river flowing through life, which, kept within its banks, is a source of pleasure and power. When it overflows its proper banks, it becomes destructive and ultimately disastrous. All that is behind the admonition to put off first all sexual immorality. That word refers to all forms of sexual intercourse outside of marriage, what's called fornication elsewhere in scripture, and adultery, which is sexual misbehavior by a married person with someone other than his or her mate. This is to be put off. This is the muddy clothes you take off by all Christians. The word of God is absolutely clear on this. There is no quibbling about these terms. They mean exactly what they say. Put off all sexual immorality. Second word is impurity. It's the word for uncleanness. It refers to what we would call perverted forms of sex, various strange and kinky sexual practices. That's all covered by this one word, impurity. Along with these, lust is also to be put away. This refers to erotic passions which are aroused by visual things. Pornography clearly falls under this classification. And anything that is sexually arousing, literature, movies, whatever, is to be denied. It belongs to the old life. It is beyond the boundaries of God's river and becomes a very destructive thing. Evil desires is closely associated with lust. It is mental uncleanness. It is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said, If a man looks after a woman and lusts after her in his heart, if he mentally plays over the picture of having sex with her, he has already committed adultery in his heart. And lastly, we are to put off greed, which is idolatry. When this word greed or covetousness appears in scripture without being linked with idolatry, it's referring to what you're probably thinking, lusting after money, the things money can buy. But in this particular context, linked with this word idolatry, it is greed to possess another person's body. Isn't that wild? It is what is called falling in love or what the world calls having an affair in which you allow another person to become so dominant in your thinking that he or she takes the place of God to you. And he quotes lyrics from songs, You're all I need, I can't live without you. All these expressions are saying, You are like God to me. I am looking to you to fulfill the deepest longings and yearnings of my heart. And anyone who's lived very long knows that such is an impossible demand. No human can fill that need. This has become so common today as it was in the first century that even Christians tend to accept these practices and to overlook the error of those who fall into them. And the apostle says there's two things wrong with that acceptance. First, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And the word is the continuous present tense. Because of these, the wrath of God keeps coming. It's coming and it keeps coming. That's Colossians 3.6. Several manuscripts add the phrase on those who are disobedient. 
And these are moral absolutes which men cannot break with impunity. And the point he's making is that when people live this way, there are consequences, and God allows there to be consequences. He allows not only the people to be destroyed, but that civilization to be destroyed. Many people, old and young alike, often say, what I do in private is nobody else's business. We hear that on many sides today, even in connection with the discipline of the church. It's not your business what we do, but it is. Because when individuals indulge themselves in this way, God takes away the restraints upon evil, and all of society is widely affected. Second reason Paul gives is in Colossians 3.7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now here come my words, not Stedman's. That's like going back to lick up your own vomit or to rub your own poop all over yourself after you've gone to the bathroom. And that's my translation of that one verse. I mean, picture it. It's stupid. But Christians do it all the time. If Christians fall into these practices, they are reverting to a lifestyle which no longer reflects their true identity. They are doing things that are no longer them. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. So people tend to look at this passage and say, okay, it's just like the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't do this. Don't do that. But the law was only able to point out what was wrong. That's it. It didn't give you the ability to overcome it. We're living in a different paradigm. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's actually pointing out is, now that you have become a Christian, you are no longer what you once were. Something has happened. You must now stop because you can stop. You've got a new resource, a new power, a new life, a strong Savior who will be with you in every moment of temptation, and you can say no. That is why you must stop. It's the difference between those under law and those under grace. And then he goes even deeper and he starts talking about some of our inner attitudes. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. This is Colossians 3.8. So if you thought you're safe with that whole sex list... Fasten your seatbelts. Now Paul begins the list of attitudes to renounce. First, we no longer need to give way to anger. And according to scripture, there's nothing wrong with anger itself. It's the expression of that anger that can be a problem. What one commentator called impetuous name-calling or calculated insult. That's what that anger is referring to. That belongs to the old life. Second word is rage. That's a temper tantrum. I don't care how old you are. It refers to any violent display or attack by either word or deed upon another person. Can't do that. That's the old life. The third word is malice. That is silent, hidden hatred of the heart that takes revenge in secret. You ever heard of a waiter that takes revenge on the nasty customer by spitting in their soup before serving it to them? Have you ever spit in somebody's soup? Metaphorically speaking. So... An act of revenge inspired by malice. Then fourthly, slander. This is an attack on another person's character. Whispering things about him, whether true or untrue, that destroys his reputation in another's eyes. That's slander. In the world, you can be sued for slander, but if what you said was true, then that's your defense. In the kingdom, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter if what I'm saying is true. If it's making you think differently about somebody else, that's slander. It's part of my old life. I can't do it anymore because I really can not do it anymore. Fifth word is filthy language, foul talk, crude, coarse words. The kind of things you say when you hit yourself with a hammer. 
You all know the temptation to do this, but it is to be put away because it is not you anymore. And now he gives the best definition of hypocrite that I've ever seen. I find um, many Christians are confused as to just when they are being hypocritical. Nobody, of course, wants to be a hypocrite, but many Christians think they are being a hypocrite when they know that inwardly they have all these evil temptations, but nevertheless they go to church and sing the hymns and all that. But what the Bible says is that a Christian is a hypocrite when he gives way to the wrong things. The real you is singing praise to God. The dead you is the one that wants to do all this stuff. So you're being a hypocrite. You're not being yourself when you're behaving that old way. You are being your true self when you praise God and respond with love, joy, and peace. That is when you are real. You are a phony, a hypocrite when you give way to evil attitudes and practices. Six word is lying. It's an untruth that breeds suspicion. It destroys trust, and we pay a terrible price. We find it hard to win trust back. And then finally, we have this word in verse 11. Um, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And if you take that away from the context, and I'm going to say it again, yes I am, every time I get up here, all meaning is context dependent. If you take that away from the context, it sounds like it's talking about diversity in the body, kumbaya, yeah. There's, it also, it's all, this is the same list goes in Galatians where they add neither male nor female in Christ. But in this particular context, dealing with putting off the expressions of the old life, this verse is saying that we can no longer excuse wrong conduct on the basis of class, background, or origin, or gender. You ever heard a Christian say, I know I have a bad temper, but I can't help it. I'm Irish. All Irishmen have bad tempers. You're not an Irishman anymore. He died. You're a Christian. Which three things? Class, background, or origin, and I added gender, because I've heard that as an excuse. I'm a guy. I can't help it. You're a Christian. Yes, you can. This is the kind of thing Paul describes. There's no longer to be any of that for you, or no longer what you once were. We all have what it takes to say no to wrong and to say yes to God so that our lives are filled with love, peace, and joy. We're filled with courage and undaunted confidence that life is not repressive and dull, but an adventure in which we are being led into every situation, trial, hardship, whatever, to test us and to help us to learn that the one who goes with us is able to take us through. We are to look unto Jesus. That's the exhortation everywhere in Scripture. He will take us through the present trial and make it into a blessing. Your sorrow, he said to his disciples, shall be turned into joy. That's how a Christian ought to live, joyfully, because of this great truth. So these are all the things we took off. So now what do we put on? We put on Christ. Here's the shift to the new paradigm. God's worldview. We may be made of dust, but it doesn't mean we're dirt. In fact... The mineral, the kind of dust that we are most like, our physical composition, is like granite. No wild. At least, you know, as far as chemically. And the story goes that Michelangelo, the great sculptor and painter, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, was pushing a heavy rock up a small incline to his work area so he could do some sculpting. 
And a neighbor was watching him. And this was like for over an hour. Um, he was working to get this big rock in place. And finally he asked Michelangelo, why do you labor so hard over that ugly, heavy piece of rock? And Michelangelo said, because there is an angel inside that wants to come out. That's a Michelangelo angel out of granite. And see, God made us out of the type of material that can be sculpted and molded into something beautiful. We're not just dirt as in filth. It's like clay. We're the makings of a work of art. And we are made in our artist's image. This is just, to me, a lovely picture, photo, except it's not a photo. This is actually a sculpture. There's the artist doing a self-portrait. Now, if this was God, he would be a lot bigger than the work of art. But isn't that wild? And it looks like him because it's a self-portrait. But let's look at another work of art, same artist. This one's also awesome, but it doesn't look like him. And so if his goal was to do a self-portrait and this is what he came up with, that wouldn't be so good. And wouldn't it be a drag if the whole point of creating us was to have self-portraits. God made man to have these little versions of him reflecting his glory, but we don't look like him? That'd be a shame. The idea that God makes, makes us in his image is not just true at the moment of creation, but throughout our lives. God, the ultimate artist, is wanting both to work on us as his masterpieces and to use us as tools, and I mean that in the positive way, to help shape others into masterpieces. Masterpieces that reflect his glory, or if you will, that are a piece of the master. Master pieces. Sir Thomas More said that to be educated, a person doesn't have to know much or be informed, but he or she does have to be exposed vulnerably to the transformative events of an engaged human life. We could chew on that one for an hour. We won't. We must be willing to be vulnerable in order to be transformed. We must be engaged. That's aware of what the master is doing and cooperating with the process. Can you imagine if the piece of granite starts rolling away every time Michelangelo's trying to... Yeah. That, that, yeah, that'd be hard. We need to cooperate even when it means killing off a part of our old self. So what is the master shaping us into, and how do we cooperate? Let's go on with Colossians. Again, some of this is from Ray Stedman. And he says, you know, we just keep playing over and over in our minds the movies of the past. But he says, when you start your day, begin this way. Put away the old reactions and clothe yourself. Put on deliberately in your thinking these seven qualities that reflect the life and temperament of Jesus. First is compassion. Clothe yourselves with compassion. It's what we would call a heart of pity. It's a sense of sympathy or empathy with someone. That's how we're supposed to approach life. And then the next thing is kindness. Kindness is an action that reveals compassion, an action that arises out of sympathy. Many centuries ago, a certain young man from a rural setting went to live in a large city and fell in with the wrong crowd. It wasn't San Antonio. He lived a wild and dissolute life, becoming involved in many hurtful things which almost destroyed him. But he heard a preacher one day, and though he did not particularly appreciate his preaching, he was struck by the man. He went to hear him again, and soon that preacher was able to lead him to Christ. 
And that young man has become famous as St. Augustine. And this is what he said about Ambrose, the pastor of the cathedral in Milan. He said, I began to love him, not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I despaired of finding in the church, but as a fellow creature who was kind to me. That's what opened the door, kindness. Third quality is humility. Pretty much the opposite of pride. We're not to consider ourselves in any way as superior to others. Then there's gentleness. It's often translated meekness, not weakness, meekness. There's a couple, he gives a couple of definitions. Strength under control or the willingness to waive one's rights for a good cause. So set aside your rights. Dead people have no rights. The fifth quality is patience, and literally it's long-suffering, the enduring of another's exasperating conduct without flying into a rage. It is holding back, restraining yourself from becoming upset or speaking sharply or surely to somebody, be it your mate, your child, or whoever's conduct you find difficult and exasperating. And linked with that is forbearance. In verse 13, he tells us to bear with one another. That's like long-suffering, but it's the positive side. Long-suffering, I hold back. I don't let you have it. Um, bearing with you is to uphold and support you. You not only restrain yourself, but you support and encourage the other person, even if they're annoying. Last quality is forgiving one another. Verse 13 says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. This is within the church. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that doesn't mean we just stifle everything. The Bible also tells us if we have a grievance, there's a way to deal with that. But then once you've dealt with it, you've expressed it, forget it. Let it go. Wayne talked about that last week. Put it away. No longer let yourself think about it. That's what Christ did with our sins. And he tells us, first, you don't keep bringing it up to the person. If I forgave somebody, I don't keep bringing it up. And I don't bring it up to other people. And I don't bring it up to myself. I put it away. So we have a choice. What person are we? You've got your two columns. There's one column that's like Christ and one column like, that's like our old dead pigs. And once he's given us these seven beautiful qualities of Christ, he tells us to wrap all around it the bond of love. Over and all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's verse 14. And someone has said, put on the overcoat of love. It kind of ties everything together. But, back in verse 12, he told us why. He said, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. There it is. It's something God did for us. He chose us. He makes us holy. I'm not so much better than anybody else that I don't want to be patient with. We are expected to be different because we are different. We share a different kind of life. And we're dearly loved by God. That's where our actions coming from. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and counsel one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. When he says the word rule, it means to be an umpire. Christ's peace should be our umpire. When there's something we don't agree on together, when there's a problem in the church, Christ's peace, 
keeps us unruffled, like an umpire in a game is supposed to act. Even when the fans are throwing bottles at him, right? Let the calmness of Christ rule among you. He's in control. And be thankful. And instruct one another by means of the word. That is how we get life. Through the word. Much as we enjoy hanging out with each other, it's the word that brings life. And notice, too, how the whole body is to be involved in this. We are to teach and counsel one another. That's at home. That's at work. That's here. It's not just something the pastor does. And with this, Paul links also the ministry of music. He recognizes its powerful ministry in our lives. talks about different kinds of songs. And so we are to sing the truth as well as study it with gratitude in our hearts. And then verse 17 moves to the arena of society and the world. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And he suggests we memorize that verse. Everything in life, every activity can be done with that motivation. You do things you do not like because you offer them willingly to the Lord as a sweet sacrifice to him. If you love someone, you will do things for his or her sake that you do not particularly like doing. But that's the point. Somebody couldn't pay you to do this stuff, but you do it anyway. If we love the Lord, we offer to him the activities of our day. We do everything with a view to his glory. That's the picture of life under the Lordship of Christ. I wanted us to do an exercise, but I don't think we have time for it. So, as you leave today, keep a question with you. When God was making you, and he's still in the process of doing that, what what might he have had in mind when he first looked at that block of granite? And in what ways do you resist him? And that's something good to pray for each other about because we need to help each other abandon the old paradigm go into the new way of seeing the world I think we'll stop there and I'm going to ask some of our leaders to stay hanging around the front like we usually do so that if people need prayer they can get prayer because it's an adventure and an adventure has its difficulties, and it has its mud, and it has its scary moments. And so if you're facing any of those, um, we'd love to pray with you. Thank you.